We'll have two more messages left in this study in the prophet Elisha. And this morning we're looking at some verses in 2 Kings chapter 8. And I actually want to read the first two verses and then verses 7 and 8. So our focus will be through those first 15 verses. But I'm going to ask you if you'll stand in God's honor as I read aloud text. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Go away with your family and stay for a while wherever you can, because the Lord has decreed a famine in the land that will last seven years. The woman proceeded to do as the man of God said. She and her family went away and stayed in the land of the Philistines seven years. End of verse 7. Elisha went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, was ill. When the king was told, the man of God has come all the way up here, he said to Haziel, Take a gift with you and go to meet the man of God. Consult the Lord through him. Ask him, Will I recover from this illness? Let's pray. God, as we look at your servant Elisha and his ministry, we're reminded he was able to do great things because he served a great God who empowered him for that. And so, Father, we look for Jesus this morning. Lord, we know that we are a broken people who require a Savior, and you provided. And we worship you for your provision that your love was clearly shown and the depth of that love we can't even fathom, but it belongs to us. And so, Father, as we look at the tough times that were faced, Father, by this widow and a heart that had, Father, turned from you in a servant to the king, I, I pray that all of this would remind us we need Christ today. So speak to our hearts, speak beyond what I say. Holy Spirit, may we hear you. And Lord, we long to meet with you this morning. Thank you that so far we have, that those who have led us in worship have led us to worship, Lord. And we just don't want to break that. We want that to continue. So be with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. These first verses start out and they tell us about this Shunammite widow. And there is a term called Shunammite hospitality. And that comes from the fact of her great hospitality to the servant Elisha. You know, it tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Have you had, ever had somebody just show up unexpectedly? And you find yourself anxious and thinking, what are they doing here? I can't believe they showed up without telling me. And how difficult that can be. Uh, I, I think back to some dear friends of ours in a church we had previously served, Harold and Nancy Bailey. And Nancy was one of those who clearly has the gift of hospitality. And uh, grew really close to them. And I remember there was one Christmas season where Nancy invited me to the house because Nancy and two other ladies, Nancy had a double oven, and they would bake Christmas cookies and desserts. 
And so she invited me over, hey, maybe test a couple of these cookies. And, man, I was excited. This was ministry for Todd. This was a great chance to serve Jesus. And so I went over there. Man, these great cookies are coming out of the oven. And I'm getting to test them and taste them. And life is good. About that time, her husband Harold walked in, and you could just see the look on his face. He didn't know about this. And what I surmised was going through Harold's mind was, he's eating these cookies before I get to eat these cookies. These are my cookies. Now, Harold never grumbled. He never said anything to me. Neither did Nancy or did I hear anything else. I just know how we all tend to be. This Shunammite widow, though, she had saw Elisha the prophet pass by her home. And so she said to her husband, we need to meet him. And, and so he came to their house and they provided a meal for him. And they were just friends. They ministered to him through hospitality. Eventually, they built a room onto their house so that when Elisha passed by, he had a place to stay. He had a little retreat to get some rest and to be strengthened for his ministry. What a, what a beautiful couple. And this lady, as we read in our scripture, we read about her and and suddenly she receives news from Elisha. There's about to be seven bad years of famine in the land. And you need to take off. You need to get away. And, and so let me just read from the text here these first four verses. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Go away with your family and stay for a while wherever you can, because the Lord has decreed a famine in the land that will last seven years. The woman proceeded to do as the man of God said. She and her family went away and stayed in the land of the Philistines seven years. At the end of the seven years, she came back from the land of the Philistines and went to the king to beg for her house and land. The king was talking to Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, and had said, Tell me all about the great things Elisha has done. Now, before I go any further in this text, there was something that stood out to me. And, and as you study the scripture, sometimes you see something and it looks like a contradiction. It's like, what? And, and, and here's what I'm talking about. It says in the text here, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha. Now, if you remember in prior studies, Gehazi was a guy that got called up in thinking, how can I get some money from this rich guy, Naaman? who was healed. Elisha, he, he turned away the offer of, of money, uh, the, the offer of, of riches when Naaman was healed. But Gehazi thought, you know, maybe he'll still give me some money. Maybe that's still available. And as a result of Gehazi's heart, he was stricken with leprosy. That's what the text tells us. So how could such a guy still be called the servant of Elisha. Certainly he would be estranged from the prophet. Certainly he showed his true colors. He, he revealed his heart and it wasn't to be a servant of the Lord. It was selfish. Now two explanations for this from commentators because that's what we do. We read and you know a lot of times I get these commentaries and it's like when it comes to what I don't understand they don't say anything. Well that doesn't do me any good. 
But a couple of commentators, and, and they had some answers. One answer was simply, well, this isn't in chronological order, and, and so, you know, th- this happened before the experience with Naaman. But, but it's, it's not consistent with the fact that seven years have passed. And I think a much better answer was the second explanation I read, which said that this was simply a title that when Gehazi was selected to serve next to his mentor, Elisha, it was just assumed that he would be the guy that would take up the mantle of Elisha and that he would carry on that work. And so that was what he was known by. Uh, You know, another example of that, remember Rahab, the harlot or the prostitute? (laughs) She placed her trust in the Lord, but past the experience of her faith in the living God, she was known or described later on in the scriptures as Rahab the prostitute. That was how she was viewed or how she was known. Even after her life had changed, there was a reference to her past. Or take, for example, presidents who have served in the past in the United States. Although they are currently not the president of the United States, they are often called Mr. President, or that title is referenced as a matter of respect. And so I believe it is much more likely here when he's saying Gehazi, the servant of the Lord, um, the reference is that is how he is viewed. That is how he is still seen. Now, let's move on here, uh, verses 5 and 6 as we come down in the Scripture It says, just as Gehazi was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, the woman whose son Elisha had brought back to life came to beg the king for her house and land. Gehazi said, this is the woman, my lord, the king, and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. The king asked the woman about it, and she told him. Then he assigned an official to her case and said to him, give back everything that belonged to her including all the income from her land from the day she left the country until now. Now, a couple of things here I want to say about tough times. This lady had seven years of not knowing where she was going, but knowing that she had to leave. Think about the difficulty of that. Often when God calls us to an act of obedience, we don't know where we're going. We don't know how long it will be. In this case, she did. She knew seven years. We don't know what will transpire along that journey, what difficulties will be faced, what we even need for the journey. I mean, Elisha didn't give her a map. Elisha didn't have instructions that said, well, go five miles this way and then take a right and go four miles this way and and then go straight for 37 miles and and that's where you're going to end up. There was not specific instructions. And let's face it, so often in the Christian life, in being obedient to Jesus Christ, there are not specific directions on what to do next. We simply go in obedience with what we know now. And that is what she did. Think about it. She left her home. She probably left other family that was nearby. She left the estate that she and her husband had built together, the place that was so precious to her. 
and she headed to a strange land with, well, strange people, people different than what she was familiar with, which was a, certainly a difficult time. Secondly, the solutions God most often brings are experienced as we trust Him, as we place our faith, as we place our confidence in Him. The missionary David Livingston, when he served in Africa, he became famous as God was moving and people received word how God was at work in another land. And so several missionaries became interested and they wanted to join David Livingston. They wanted to be part of that great missionary endeavor. And so one of the mission boards contacted David Livingston and they asked him, they said, there are several missionaries who would love to join you in the work, but they have a question. Are there clear roads to the place where you are working, where you are going? And Livingston responded in writing, if the men you are sending require good roads, do not send them. <laughs> Today there is this picture of, of Christianity without the cross. There is no such thing as obedience without a price. And we find that as we follow Jesus, there is certainly a price, and he calls it carrying your cross for the sake of Jesus Christ. Or we'll say, I'll follow Christ as long as he guarantees a safe future. There is no such thing as complete safety. There is only the promise that he will go with us and that ultimately we win in the end. But among the journey, there are often difficult times. But now she is headed back with a possibility of going home to the place that she has missed. Seven years have passed, and now there is a promise that things will be better. And, and so she heads back. I was thinking about the home I grew up in. I had the joy of just growing up in one home, especially now. People move more often, and uh, they live in different places, and so often they don't stay in the same house their whole life. But I had that privilege. You know, I was thinking back. We had, it was a simple ranch home, three small bedrooms, one bath. Imagine today, most of us think, one bath? How are we going to survive that? There's more than one of us, you know. But, uh, uh, you know, we didn't have a dishwasher. I was a dishwasher, you know. Didn't have one of those machines that did it for you. Certainly didn't have a garbage disposal. If I wanted to dispose of the trash, I had to take out that big green receptacle that stuck out in fr front of the house for the garbage truck to come pick up. We watched TV, but we only had three channels, four maybe sometimes, if you could turn that rabbit ear antenna the right way. And usually we had to enhance the signal by putting tinfoil on the top of the antenna, if any of you guys remember doing that uh but when my mom died my dad had already died my sister and i came to a place where we sold the house and you know a lot of times and i'm just being honest with this is just me if people say i want to go back and i want to see the place where i grew up i don't know i just don't and i think what happened to me is like in the past when i've gone back to the school i attended or whatever i'll just be honest with you, it's always kind of a letdown because i guess i romanticize and think i want to go back to this place and have all these memories and it's just not the same but what a great place and what great memories i have in that place 
But there is a difference. She was going back to stay. I would only get to go back and see what, how the house has changed, what they have done in remodeling it. Uh, but she was going back to stay. Now, I want you to consider something here. She is going to one of the sons who is now in charge, who was the son of Jezebel and Ahab. They were not known for being nice and generous and giving back property that was in their possession. As a matter of fact, uh, if you remember, there was a vineyard that they took by force because Ahab liked it and took it. So here she is. She's headed in to make a request to this king for her land, for her estate. Now this seems crazy. Do you really think that a king of royal family with this type of track record would make such a request? But I want you to see how God is at work. There's only really one person who could validate the testimony of what happened apart from Elisha the prophet, and that is the servant Gehazi. And guess where Gehazi is in our text? He is talking to the king. And what's he talking about? He's talking about this Shunammite widow and what God had done in her life, how God had been at work. So here she walks in, and these two are talking, and it's almost like I can just see Gehazi saying, uh, uh, King, there she is. There's the widow I've, I've been telling you about. God was at work. God had a plan. Seven years have gone by and often she couldn't see how God was going to restore her life and her property and what she had seen the loss. And yet God was at work the whole time. And now she was able to catch a glimpse of God clearly at work to restore what she had previously lost. And guys, I don't think that was a coincidence. Matter of fact, I've... Uh, well, it's probably not new to me because, as uh, Chuck Swindoll says, nothing is, um, I mean, everything is fair in love, war, and preaching. I didn't put preaching in there, but uh, so I've probably heard it somewhere and, and taken it. But anyway, it wasn't a coincidence. I believe it was a God incident. That God is orchestrating the circumstances for his glory as he works on the behalf of his children. And he still does that how many times do we quote romans 8 28 and i hope it's more than just getting the parking place we want when we ended up but something's happening and look at this case she's been away seven years this really looks like a hopeless endeavor but it's not we know that in all things god works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose amen and it goes on in verse 29, and it says, why does that occur? So that we can be conformed to the image of Jesus, his son. Because he wants to make us like Christ. One commentator put it this way, I love this. He said, when God does move, there are no coincidences. A coincidence is really a small miracle where God prefers to remain anonymous. We should be praying for the perception and insight to see God in the small miracles. Amen. All right, let's move on to the second story, uh, the temptations of a would-be king. In verses 7 and 8, 
we read about this incredible temptation. We see Elisha, he went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, he's ill. When the king was told, the man of God has come all the way up here, he said to Haziel, take a gift with you and go to meet the man of God, consult the Lord through him, ask him, will I recover from this illness? It's kind of fascinating. You know, suddenly when people realize they're going to die, they get a little bit interested about what happens after death, what happens about eternity. Here's a guy who probably didn't give God a lot of thought, but now he's thinking, I might meet him, so maybe I need to reconsider this, and I need to talk to the representative of God. So Elisha is called in for that purpose. And I, I want you to notice here, uh, his servant, the king's servant, Haziel, he goes in verse 9, we read, to meet Elisha. And he takes with him a gift of 40 camel loads of all the finest wares of Damascus. He went in and he stood before him and said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, has sent me to ask, Will I recover from this illness? Now, verse 10, we've already looked at one problem for a preacher that had to do um, with a, a time frame. But now we're going to look at a second problem. I mean, I got two problems to deal with here. I had to, you know, look at and pray over. Uh, but in verse 10, we read, Elisha answered, Go and say to him, You will certainly recover, but the Lord has revealed to me that he will, in fact, die. So at first glance, it's, well, what is it? What's the answer here? Is he going to live or is he going to die? You're saying here he's going to live, but then he dies. Well, what is going on here? Is this a contradiction? Well, I think the answer is found in the next verse, the first part of verse 11. He stared at him with a fixed gaze until Haziel fell ashamed. I think what Elisha was revealing was the fact that it was not the illness that would kill the king. He would die another way, by the hands of a traitor. By the man that Elisha was looking at eye to eye. And when Elisha looked at him, he, he could see the nervousness on Haziel's face. And God revealed to him, this guy is a con man. This guy is, wants the kingdom. This guy is power hungry. This guy is not who he appears to be. He has been a very uh, good politician who has been able to worm his way up in power and his goal is to take over. So the last part of verse 11, it says, Then the man of God began to weep. You know, I think that gives all of us hope. Here's a guy, I mean, I just, from what I'm reading about him, he sounds like a scoundrel. He's all about himself. He's not about the kingdom. He's not about the people. He's not about what God wants. He's about self-power. He's about me. And yet, the prophet of God, he could have just said, you're disgusting. Why are you even here? That's not what he did. He began to weep. And 
we, that is so representative of God. I think God looks at us when we are not walking with Him or when we're pretending to be what we're not. And, and, and He knows. And He could zap us. He could zing us. But I think often He cries on our behalf because He knows what we are meant for and He sees that we are not there. And He is a God of compassion. And I see this through Elisha and I believe it comes from God Himself. Let's read on here in our text. Verse 12. Why is my Lord weeping, asked Haziel? Because I know the harm you will do to the Israelites, he answered. You will set fire to their fortified places, kill their young men with the swords, dash their little children to the ground, and rip open their pregnant women. Haziel still playing the game. Look at verse 13. Haziel said, How could your servant, a mere dog, Accomplish such a feat. The Lord has shown me that you will become king of Aram. Elisha answered. And that is exactly what would later transpire. Just a, just a day later, and we read in our text what occurs. Then, Elisha, then Haziel left Elisha and returned to his master. When Ben-Hadad asked, what did Elisha say to you? Haziel replied, He told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day, he took a thick cloth, soaked it in water, and spread it over the king's face so that he died. Then Haziel succeeded him as king. So here's a king who's sick. He's got what he believes is a trusted servant coming to care for him coming to try to make him uh, feel better in his sickness. But the truth is, he's coming to kill him, to take his life, so that he could be the next king. One commentator mentioned a find by archaeologists, and there was a, a Syrian inscription that mentions King Haziel by name. It dates to this point in time of this account, which we are studying this morning. The description is short, it's brief, it's cryptic, but it tells you what people thought of this king. The inscription reads, Haziel, the son of nobody, seized the throne. Here was a guy that was a nobody who thought he became a somebody, but the people saw clearly he was a nobody. In reality you know at one point I believe Haziel really cared I believe that he wanted to do the right thing but he spiraled downward there was a progression of the temptation beginning to take over and take root I, I think of James description of temptation in James 1 uh, 13 through 15 where it says, um, And God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. You see, there is 
something inside each of us, the root of sin, that we see it and we think, ooh, I really, really want that. I really want that. And then it consumes us. As the scripture says, we're dragged away and enticed. It begins to take over that deep longing for whatever it is, the temptation. Then in verse 15, he says, then desire, starts with the desire, then desire after it is conceived, you know, it, it gives birth to sin. You know, the, the fish bites the hook and then he's caught. Well, you know, we bite the temptation, the sin itself. And, and the verse ends by saying, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. That is the end of sin, death. If God does not step in, if a Savior is not received, if the mercy and grace of God does not become personally yours, the end of sin is death, spiritual death, eternal death, which means that you will not be with God for eternity, but separated from Him. And the Scripture talks about a coming judgment. It takes a Savior in order to miss that end. Uh, J.B. Meyer, in his commentary on the book of James, he mentions some steps to godliness. I'm just going to mention a few of these. Uh, he starts out with, he says, the will actively resists under divine influence. I think we are too quick to say, oh, God will forgive me. We have a gracious God. We have a loving God. We have a forgiving God. But how often, you know, the old saying, <laughs> it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. How often is it really an excuse want this so bad I know God will forgive me but part of godliness is that you have to understand he has given you a will the Holy Spirit lives in you and we are called to be victorious we are not called to succumb to temptation and to fall into sin we are called to walk in victory too often I think we talk about the forgiveness of God without even trying to walk in the victory of God and the power of God. All right, uh, there's three of these I just want to mention. The second one is the will identifies with the conscience and refuses to proceed. So in other words, the temptation is strong, but you are able to stop in the power of God through the Spirit of God and say no! I will not hurt my Savior in this manner. I will not continue on such a course that is destined to bring death, either death to a relationship or, or death to my health or, or death to something else. I want there to be life instead and not death. And so to live in the power of God and through Him to say no. And then the last one here, that a habit of godly character is formed by repetition of virtuous choices in other words as we continue to say yes to God and no to the power of the temptation God builds character within us it's spiritual muscles being exercised and strengthened so that we are strong stronger in Christ and of course this is an ongoing battle day to day who will we listen to 
Will our will listen to God or will it listen to the temptation that wants to draw us away from God? You remember uh, Pinocchio? Here, here's a part from uh, Pinocchio, the cartoon, and from Jiminy Cricket. Uh, Jiminy Cricket challenged Pinocchio to listen to his conscience. Uh, about what temptation is all about and how the world is filled with it. So I'm just going to read straight a little bit from uh, the book. Pinocchio is told by the Blue Fairy, it's entirely up to you. Up to me, prove yourself brave, truthful, unselfish, and someday you will be a real boy. A real boy, Jiminy Cricket says. That won't be easy. Then Pinocchio is told by the Blue Fairy, you must learn to choose between right and wrong. Right and wrong? But how will I know? Your conscience will tell you. Uh, what's a conscience? Jiminy says. Uh, I'll tell you, the conscience is that still small voice that people don't listen to. That's just the trouble with the world today. Pinocchio asks, are you my conscience? Who, me? Jiminy is asked by the blue fairy, would you like to be Pinocchio's conscience? Jiminy replies, well, um, uh, uh, um. Blue Fairy says, very well, what is your name? Jiminy answers, Cricket's the name, Jiminy Cricket. Kneel, Mr. Cricket, I dub you Pinocchio's conscience. Lord High, keeper of the knowledge of right and wrong, counselor moments of temptation and guide along the straight and narrow path. Arise, sir, Jiminy Cricket. Jiminy says, well, my, my, that's pretty swell. Gee, thanks, but don't I get a badge or something? Well, we'll see. You mean maybe a, a gold one? Now, remember, Pinocchio, be a good boy and always let your conscience be your guide. Jiminy says, goodbye, my lady. Pinocchio says, goodbye. Jiminy says, not bad, says I. Oh, yeah, I almost forgot about you. Well, Pinocchio, uh, maybe you and I better have a heart-to-heart. Why? Well, you want to be a real boy, don't you? Uh-huh. Well, sit down, son. Now, you see, the world's full of temptations. Temptations? Yeah, temptations. They're the wrong things that seem right at the time, but uh, even though the right things may seem wrong sometimes, sometimes the wrong things may be right at the wrong time or vice versa, understand? But... Uh, I'm going to be do right. That a boy, Pinocchio. I'm going to help you. Anytime you need me, just whistle. I don't whistle very good, so don't expect this. That's it. Let's sing it. When you get in trouble and you don't know right from wrong, give a little whistle. Give a little whistle. When you meet temptation and the urge is very strong, give a little whistle. Give a little whistle. Not just a little squeak. Puff her up and blow. And if your whistle's weak, yell, Jimmy Cricket, take the straight and narrow path. And if you start to slide, give a little whistle, give a little whistle, and always let your conscience be your guide. Hmm. I want to change this up a little bit, though, with our conscience being our guide. Our conscience needs to be formed and guided and crafted by the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the heart of God. Otherwise, even our conscience can miss. Mark Twain once said, I, can't resist I can resist anything but temptation. <laughs> temptation can certainly be difficult. And someone else wrote, the bad thing about little sins is they grow up so fast. Isn't that true? A couple things about temptation as I, I close this out. Uh, first truth is, the presence of temptation is inevitable in spite of fellowship with God. Although we walk with God, although we want to follow God, it doesn't mean that we can avoid all temptation. 
temptation is a part of the walk. Um, had a seminary professor who once shared about the difficulties in his life and the temptations. And he, he said that he'd pastored a number of churches um, going on in his 70s. He said, it seems the closer I walk with God, the more severe temptation comes. Now, isn't that encouraging? No! doesn't really seem too encouraging. But the point is that as we walk with God, he walks with us, he walks through it, and it is for his glory and delight. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, that we are to beware, be careful, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Secondly, second truth, the power of temptation is impossible to overcome without intervention from God. We will succumb to temptation without God's help. None of us are big enough, strong enough, capable enough to stand against the power of sin without the power of the Savior at work in our life. It is that simple. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide you a way out. An emergency escape. He will provide to save you. Um, the great song, the fount of every blessing. This verse I have thought about so many times, and many of you have as well. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Now, I, I could start trying to name possible temptations that you guys are facing. We're all at different places. But the truth of the matter is, I guarantee you, every one of us have temptations, have struggles that we are constantly engaged in battle about. And God is there. Someone has said, whenever temptation knocks, send Jesus to answer the door. When temptation knocks at your door, who are you going to send? to answer the door. Let me close uh, with this wonderful little chorus, simple chorus, but says it quite well. In my life, Lord, be glorified. Be glorified. In my life, Lord, be glorified today. In my heart, Lord, be glorified. Be glorified. In my heart, Lord, be glorified today. In my plans, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. In my plans, Lord, be glorified today. Let's pray. God, we come to you and we want to be honest. We don't want to play games like Haziel, Lord, pretend to be something we're not. We know that you know who we are, just like your servant Elisha clearly revealed to Haziel. So you see us, you know where we are. And this time that we call invitation or response is a time for, for you to move, Lord, in our hearts, our lives. And so we need to be honest with you. We need to be open to what you're saying to us. And we need to respond 
to what you ask of us. And so I pray in this time, Lord, that's what would happen. Uh, if we need to move toward the altar and pray, may it be. Lord, if we deal with you right where we are, may it be. Uh, if something needs to be shared with this body of believers, Lord, of what you're up to in our lives, may it be. Just simply put, Lord, may it be for Jesus. So move among us. We need you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.